listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 235. I'm your host, Annika Harrison, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Pontus Bergman and Brian Ego. Hello! Hey son, hey son! All right, trips. Hey, new <laughs> setup, hey. new crew on the ESP here. It's just, except for me, of course. Yeah, you won't get rid of me that easy. Are you fresh? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back, yeah. Brian. It's been a while. It's good to be back. I can't remember when the last time was. Was it pre-lockdown or early lockdown? It might have been early lockdown. Um, I think it was early lockdown. Yeah, it's not uh, that long okay. ago. I think. So well done, both of you, for surviving. So far, Thanks. good. <laughs> I guess Andras didn't make it then. What no, a shame. no, no. We're, we're not expecting him to be back anytime Can soon. Can I have his microphone then? Because <laughs> I've still got my shitty one. Andras, if you or Andras's family, um, I'll send you my address. You can send me his microphone, okay? You can have the background dog too. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Please. We have. We. I think that's the microphone. Actually, it comes with built-in sound effects, like a dog barking in the background. Yes. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, how have you been doing? Um, yeah, I've been all right. Lockdown for me hasn't been too different just because of the fact that I work from home anyway. I've got a young child in the house. So, you know, partying was out of the out of the equation anyway. I have been doing a fun DIY project, mm -hmm. um, building a big summer house in my garden, which will become my office at some point when I'm finally finished it. But other than that, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but there, I, I hear there's been a lot of things happening online, though. You're uh, involved in the Skeptics in the Pub online. We see you there once in a while. I, I, I am there and, and I am involved and I occasionally get to MC, but I, I must give big props and credit to the, the rest of the folks who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, particularly the tech team who are um, yeah. performing wizardry to, to continue to bring us good quality events. I'm in awe of their nerdiness. There's a little Slack channel they have separately from the rest of them where they keep each other up to date on their nerdery. And it's um, it's pretty bewildering stuff, you know. But it's <laughs> turning out well, you know. So I guess when this recording goes out, this coming Thursday, mm -hmm. it will be Kat Arney uh, doing a talk about uh, called Rebel Cell. And it's about cancer treatment. And the week after that will be Anthony Magnabosco talking about Ooh. epistemology. Oh, indeed, yeah. See, that <laughs> hasn't been announced yet. Pontus got all excited. <laughs> by the time it, it will have been announced by the time this show goes out, I would imagine. But yeah. if not, whoa, scoop. Yeah, yeah no, I, I love Kat Army as well. So uh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. So keep it nice and busy with the skeptics online, folks. But I should give a plug as well to my heroin-consuming friends over on the East Coast, uh, the Edinburgh skeptics not taking a rest during the fringe, even though I think they've earned it after many, many years. Uh, they are doing a, a very short online program every Tuesday night. So I guess Tuesday coming. Well, that will have been two days ago by the time this comes out. But anyway, there's three online events. Uh, so uh, by the time this comes out, you've already missed talk number one, which was Carmen de Cruz. <laughs> Your loss. <laughs> Your loss. But it'll be recorded. Check out the recording, right? She's talking about critical thinking and race. The next one, Tuesday the 18th of August, is Professor John Curtis. 
who is asking, is Scotland swinging towards independence? Which will be fascinating. Yeah. And last but not least, on the 25th of August, they have Dr. Emma Bryant on researching Cambridge Analytica, taking on the digital influence industry. So all like three, you know, very topical. Exciting stuff. Probably controversial, fascinating talks. So, you know, if you're not busy on a Tuesday night, folks, check out the Edinburgh Skeptics. And yeah, look for the the repostings online as well. Yeah, yeah, I guess one of the one of the good things about lockdown is is there's a a plethora of online content for us all to consume, right? Yeah, there is, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and all of it's very very good. Uh, so you should definitely check that out. I mean, normally during Skeptics on the Fringe, they have what is it? Usually twenty five pub nights yeah. in a row. It's over 20, yeah, like 20, dep- I wow. guess it depends when August starts. When yeah, August three starts weeks, so I guess, yeah. It's, it's three weeks and a bit of, of talks every night. So I, I would imagine that, you know, Mark and Heather and Sean and the gang will be quietly, you know, relieved that they don't have to go through that because it's, <laughs> um, it's pretty hands-on for all of them. But hopefully they'll be back to their full, you know, face-to-face program next year. Just yes. crossed, everybody. Yes, yes, yes. Give us a vaccine, please. Amazing. <laughs> That they're doing the work. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and Cologne is doing Skeptics in the Pub as well, right, Annika? Yeah, we, we've got some uh, some things planned, but nothing is super definite yet. We had um, Holm Hümmler last week. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we're doing like regular meetings where we just talk with each other. <laughs> yeah. Like the so Stamtisch. So just chit-chat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's right, yeah, Stamtisch. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, we always put it in the calendar on the events in Europe tab on our webpage at theesp.eu. Fine website. And we also, the Cologne Skeptics usually share it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So if you can't find it, you can also just contact me or Pontus or anybody from the Cologne Skeptics and we'll be very happy to help you. (laughs) Great. Yeah, so let's come from what's happening right now to what happened this week in Skepticism. This week, on the 15th of August, 1977, the WOW signal got picked up by a radio telescope. Did you ever, ever hear of the WOW signal? Uh, yeah. Don't ask me to describe it, no, but I have exactly. heard it. No, I'm exactly. Still, I'm still confused on what it really was. Yeah, and I think people never really stopped being confused about it. <laughs> the um, signal itself lasted 72 seconds, and it hasn't been detected since. But, of course, it has given way to a lot of inspiration and ideas <laughs> about extraterrestrial life. A lot of people think it was from aliens. Others think it was a conspiracy. Uh, other people think that it must have been an accident, maybe something reflected off the Earth. What actually happened is that the astronomer Jerry Eman wrote, wow, beside a transcript, when the radio telescope in Ohio picked that up in 1977 this week and yeah they're still not sure if if um, the source was maybe military from earth reflected somewhere but what they're definitely saying is that all credible signals must be replicated for confirmation and that's pretty much a scientific thing right Mm. (laughs) so like you have to be able to replicate something and it has to give you the same results otherwise it's yeah, Not so you really. have to basically go back to the aliens and say, what, what's that? Can you send us that one more time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I take it like the aliens kind of figured the Earth wasn't worth visiting. Maybe they just kind of passed us by and went, ah, dull. 
moving on, you know, and that's why we were, we haven't heard from them again since. Good, mate. They took one quick look and then they got the hell out of there. I mean, you can't say you blame them, really, if that's the case, right? Well, it's also probably because with space, you also have to have this, um, like, time contortion. So <laughs> depending on, like, from when, where they send it, it's also, like, when they send it. So if they right. send it. <laughs> right. So maybe they just, they saw some amazing dinosaurs and were like, oh, no, we can't, we can't destroy that beautiful planet. <laughs> we leave it to the locals to do that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We all have trust in them to do that, to fuck everything up. Sorry. That's why we have an explicit tag. <laughs> Um, yeah, some people think it could also have been a hydrogen cloud in the direction of where they picked it up. And Brian Dunning, and that's a name you both probably know. The said, second best Brian in skepticism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he has been on the show as well. Yeah, exactly. And he said uh, in 2012 that a radio transmission from deep space remains the best technical explanation, but there's just no evidence that it's an alien intelligence. So they say there are enough reasons to believe that it's not from Earth, like refracted somewhere, but it's no evidence either because they couldn't replicate that. (laughs) Maybe it was from aliens who weren't that intelligent and they didn't really know how to operate their equipment. Maybe it was a help signal, like Uh, (laughs) common And then they exploded a second (laughs) after, yeah. Some also uh, said maybe it's something like a lighthouse and it just uh, like turns around and it will come back at some point of time. (laughs) Yeah, it comes around every 70,000 years or so. Yeah, but it's definitely a topic where everybody can train their skeptical thinking (laughs) because it's still unsolved and it's uh, it's very interesting. So, yeah, what do you you guys think? It's super interesting, yeah. And it is one of those things that, that kind of, separates the 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 skeptics from the from the true believers if you like you know we, we, whereas we see it and we go we go wow interesting good <laughs> mystery okay too many people are just just way too quick to go aha that's the smoking gun that's the proof we need aliens are real you know i I've, I've been to a it was a sort of a joint paranormal and ufo conference before and um you you could sense in the air the desperation of everybody to believe in everything that was being spoken about there. So, you know, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that this has kind of caught the attention of the the ufology folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And um, what I actually really like about it that it still has the name Wow, like Wow Signal, <laughs> because some like a uh, the astronomer wrote Wow beside it, and I just love how the this naming process <laughs> happened. Yeah, that must well, look, be the scientific way of naming things, I'm sure. Yes. Well, look, with a name that good, you don't change it. It's pre- it probably does have some kind of boring, you know, alphanumeric code or something yeah. to Ooh. to represent which uh, which transmission it was, but. That's lost in the wind, okay? Let's stick with the wow. Yeah, yeah the wow signal. But I'm sure it must... Well. <laughs> I, I, this is just speculation on my side, but I'm sure that signal must have inspired a lot of the SETI program where, where you search for extraterrestrial... Oh, <laughs> I have to have some local <laughs> intelligence to say this. Extraterrestrial intelligence, that program in the US. I'm sure the guys driving that have got a lot of inspiration from this wow signal. Well, for sure, yeah. any little thing like that that happens is a good excuse to go and ask for funds, for budgeting, to, to you know, and, and maybe sometimes it is justifiable to, to make a big deal out of it and get a little bit of publicity just because that is the sort of thing that garners attention and does 
can sort of, you know, work your way towards getting some funding to point your telescope in a certain direction as well. So, you know, may, maybe we take the best out of it, right? Exactly. Well, like we, we still couldn't solve it anyway. So, yeah, let's just take the best out of it. And I would maybe say coming from wow to whoa and from best to maybe not the best. Um, Pontus, do you have anything to poke the Pope with? Well, well, I do. Uh, actually, I'm quite impressed with what Francis did last week. I'm not so much poking him as uh, being uh, shocked by uh, his progressiveness, if that's a word. We have, of course, heard increasing reports about him taking a firmer grip on the finances of the church. And this week, it was time to appoint new members of the Council for the Economy, which is a group that he put in place in 2014 to keep track of, uh, well, all the money in the Vatican, which is a, a big task, I assume. And I have in the past, and as late as last week, ridiculed Francis for his lack of actions when it comes to including women in high-ranking positions. He's talked about it all right several times, but not really delivered on his statements of getting more women in places of authority. Well, what do you know? In his appointment of the new Economy Council last week, he shocked everyone, including myself, by appointing six women into the group. And that's the first. Ooh. And very qualified women at that, uh, all from banking or management uh, positions, two law professors as well, and one former treasurer of Prince Charles, uh, no less. I wonder if that's a good reference to have or not, mm. but, but still... <laughs> A high-ranking position, for sure. So there's two from Germany, two women from the UK and two from Spain. And I think these series of appointments must have raised uh, quite a few eyebrows in the Vatican, I'm sure. Mm. And not only that, that, that made a, a little bit of headlines for people who follow the, uh, Francis like I do. But if you look even deeper into that and look at the total council, the new council, it has always before consisted only of cardinals and now it consists of these six new women one lay person which is also a first and only six cardinals so and one of these uh, six cardinals i'm proud to say is the swedish cardinal anders arborelius a person my mother used to babysit true story uh, I think I you talked about that in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, before, I, I take every, right? I, that's my claim to fame. I once knew this guy because my mother babysat him a long time ago. So I bring it up <laughs> every time I can. But anyway, um, so, but th the point is that he, uh, Francis has now set this group up as a 50-50 group of women and cardinals with a layperson acting as a sort of referee. So that's well done, Frankie. I th I'm very impressed. Yeah, well done, Frankie, indeed. I'm interested in the layperson. What, what what do we mean by that? Is this somebody like who's not connected in any way with the church, or? Yeah, he has. He doesn't have a, a an official um, position in the church, and his name is Alberto Minali, and he's an Italian. Name. And and I <laughs> no, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done my research deeply into, it, so I don't know exactly his background, but. Uh, I hope he has some sense of uh, money and economy, finances and things like that. I would be surprised if he didn't have that. Yeah, well right. done, Frankie. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, all right, Frankie, well done. Yeah, so Frankie should just go on and do the same for all his important steering groups and other departments, and then he should allow female priests, allow priests to be married and legalize abortions, and then we can talk and have him on the show. <laughs> but uh, before we go, just a word about the former Pope as well, Benedict, who, as we reported, went on a trip last month to Germany to see his elderly brother and was just in time, it turns out, because Georg, is that how you would pronounce that in German, Annika? Yeah, Georg. 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 Georg Ratzinger. Yeah, Georg. <laughs> who is Benedict's brother. He uh, died shortly afterwards. Hopefully it was not something that Benedict did to him. It was uh, the reason he went, rather. But there was quite a scare, at least for those who care for Benedict, afterwards, because when he returned from his trip, he did not feel well. And it appeared that he had come down with uh, the, the shingles. Ooh. So uh, that created uh, some sort of alarm. But uh, I can tell fans of Benedict not to worry. He is now more or less recovered, or as they say from the Vatican, his condition is now, quote, normal for someone his age, end quote. So. Yeah, because he has been elderly and poorly for a few years now, right? I, I think he's 92 or 93, so um, not worse mm. than any other 92-year-old, I, I guess. Yeah, so uh, it seems we haven't seen the, the last of old Palpatine just yet. Who knows? He may <laughs> live long enough to write another book to embarrass Francis like he did earlier this year in February when he co-wrote or co-published a book about uh, how uh, celibacy was the greatest thing you could really have. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's going to be around for a while, for sure. I mean, he looked like a reanimated corpse even when he was Pope. So, um, yeah, I, I get it. He's, he's one of those ones that, like, hangs around for a long, long time, you know. He's gradually just going to waste away and eventually... I think he's going to hit the 100. I'm going to, I'm going to put my money on... I'm on it now. Some, with a cold black heart like that, it doesn't get infection. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> what if he outlives Francis and becomes his successor? That would be a new thing. Whoa. That would like, be it, very ironic. <laughs> if the Catholic Church was a soap opera, that would totally happen. That's how I would write that episode. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. I would say maybe going from old people to some news now. How <laughs> about <laughs> that? Good idea. Because I'm German, I might just start with a piece of news from Germany. <laughs> We've had a second outbreak in a factory. You all heard of the scandal with Chinese in my federal country. Um, with the slaughterhouse. Yes. And now something's happening in Mumming in Bavaria. They first um, had a big outbreak at a veggie farm and now a tinning factory has a huge outbreak and they're very likely connected because where else should that come from in that um, high amount? 166 of 600 employees at the tinning factory have been tested positive and everybody like all the employees are quarantined now. Of course, there could also be more infections because they're still waiting for the tests to be like to the results to come back. And well, I have to say it's at least the outbreaks are still localized in Germany, but it's definitely not getting better here. Mm. 
it's going to happen, you know. Like you you'll see that you know, particularly where there's a concentration of people like that. So you know, we've got we've got a similar situation happening over in Denmark. So we have like a Danish abattoir uh, has been closed over a COVID nineteen cluster. Um, apparently, almost a hundred and fifty employees out of nine hundred who work there have uh, have tested positive for coronavirus. So that's had to be closed down. Now that's a place called Ringstead. Uh, it's about fifty kilometers away from Egan. And, you know, usually you would think of a, of a slaughterhouse as a very, um, you know, <laughs> sterile environment. Definitely no chance for picking up infections there, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the article that I looked in, though, you know, and, and this is a place where primarily it's, uh, it's pigs that are slaughtered there, thousands of tens of thousands of pigs. It doesn't say whether there's a risk of uh, the supply of Danish bacon being hit by this, you know. That could be the thing that tips the world over the edge is if we don't have enough bacon going around. So, well, get well soon, please, my, our Danish friends. Yeah, you should do what I do when, with bacon. I, you, you burn it to a crisp. There's no risk of any virus being yeah. left alive. In, Nothing in that. will survive in there <laughs> except for policy. the taste. But isn't it strange how these the same type of factories, is there a systemic problem with these slaughterhouses? I feel like that it has to do with humidity in the areas there because they're working in closed spaces, but they usually, like I must admit, I will have to do more research on that for next week. But I read an article where they said because they wash down the meat Mm -hmm. with like big water hoses, (laughs) um, it creates a lot of humidity. And of course, um, aerosols can spread a lot better in humid areas. (laughs) Ah, could be, could be. But one was a veggie place, didn't you say that? Yeah, but they're also still water things. Yeah, <laughs> you know? okay. But also need water or get rinsed. Yeah. So yeah. that that might prevent, you know, the vegetarians and vegans from calling into the show and advising everybody to go uh, meat free. Yeah. Although, you know, I would support that nonetheless, but um, it just shows you, I mean, it's it's a concentration of people. It is a process that is you know, by far a long way away from being kind of fully hygienic, you know, and we've, you see that from time to time with with any, you know, sort of food production plant where, uh, you know, occasionally there's an outbreak of, you know, E. coli or something like that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, this yeah, is no salmonella. surprise at all. And we're, we're, we're going to see that, you know, a lot as time goes on. Yeah, Just, exactly. But still scary. You, you want your yeah. food to be... Uh... Well, I almost said sterile, but that's not the word. But at <laughs> well, you least can't really eat sterile free food, from, I think. Free from disease. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think as long as there's like living meta, then you also have pathogens. And then it's just not how it works. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So if it's not coronavirus that's spreading around, it could be something else. So yeah, yeah. listeners, follow Pontus' advice. Please grill your bacon uh, or fry your bacon to within an inch of its life before you eat it, okay? <laughs> and wash your food wash yeah. your and your hands. <laughs> and eat with a, with a face mask. <laughs> yeah, that's the best. <laughs> right. All right. So to uh, one of our favorite topics, fake news and how to look through that or not. And maybe I'm an optimist, but I've always felt that the problem with trusting fake news on the Internet is not specifically a young person's problem. I I sometimes hear middle-aged people like myself being worried how children will be easy targets for misinformation. But my thinking is that, one, they know much more about the Internet than you do, old man. So (laughs) keep that in mind. And two, they also know 
exactly how bad it is to trust everything you read online because I'm sure young people make a few mistakes and then they realize oops shouldn't have done that and they understand this much better than a lot of other people. So a new French study seems to back me up on this. This survey checked who were consumers of almost 500 sites that were classified as dubious or unreliable and also um, who used the top 20 regular and reliable news sites in France. And they found that the age group 35 to 49 was the group that consumed the highest number of articles online. And uh, that's not unexpected, but that group also consumed a higher rate of news from bad sites. So not just in, in absolute numbers more articles from bad sites, but also proportionally more so. The best group seems to be the 50 to 64 years group and the 15 to 24 group. So <laughs> I, probably for different reasons, like the, the older people don't know how to use the internet at all, or rather they are conservative and they read the physical paper paper in the morning rather than going online. And the young people, they probably know what to avoid to some extent, at least. The 25 to 34 group was not very good, but they consumed less news online than the age group uh, mentioned above. So they probably don't have time to, to read any news at all. They're busy partying. I, I would imagine <laughs> that the definition of news is, is a hard one to pin down in mm. this day and age, particularly for the younger folks. You know, they're very unlikely or as a gen that's a generalization but i would say as a generalization very unlikely to go to bbc.com you know or bbc.co.uk or you know pick your newspaper website or whatever they're much more likely to consume news via stories that are being shared by friends you know that might mean they might end up on a news site somewhere but more often than not they might end up on a blog somebody that's reporting on something uh you know some random youtuber passing comment on something that they've seen on the news so it's second hand third hand fourth hand news that they're consuming but you could argue that that's still them consuming news but it's much messier data i would imagine right yeah, no, you're quite right. I, I think uh, you bring up a good point because I think a lot of young folks don't really look for classical news. They get all their input, if you call it that, from social media and other places. So so maybe it's that the study has a weakness and it, that it looks on, not static, but on websites that are established like that. But I still want to hope and think that young people, I, I want to believe that there's hope for the future, Brian. Don't take that away from me. <laughs> I'm absolutely not taking it away from you. I would just like to see, I would like, <laughs> do you know, it would be interesting to, to run an experiment with people of all ages, you know, just throw some stories at them and, and just get them to judge whether it's true or false or, mm. I've, or even just say, I hadn't heard of that news story before. We might get a better idea then. I know there have been studies done where they're asking, I think, college students in the US to try and figure out whether a, a social media post is a genuine post or whether it's an advert. And they, they did not perform brilliantly <laughs> with regards to differentiating, <laughs> differentiating between advertising content and, and genuine content. So that that is perhaps a, a sign for concern. But you would certainly hope as time goes on, we would get more and more tech savvy. But, uh, yeah. you know, 
Let's try and be optimistic, eh? Yeah. (laughs) But the the study also did find something that is not so uh, optimistic. And and it's also in line with what we've heard before, because they also looked at people of higher education and higher living standards. And it it showed that those people also consumed more BS than average, which is, of course, disappointing. But as I said, it's in line with what we've heard before. It seems like if you're doing well, you tend to be less critical of what you read. And you probably feel that because you're doing well and because you have a high education, you believe that you're not as easily fooled, which is why you get fooled, I guess. I but I have so. to say there's also a difference between consuming BS and believing in it. Because like me as a skeptic, I regularly consume BS, but <laughs> I don't believe in it. So that's I true. Think that yeah, yeah, you're has right. to be also mentioned. <laughs> some of us do look at some pages just because we know it's bullshit and because we want to to see the other side. That that that's true. It, it is interesting. We we got a a direct message from somebody to the Glasgow Skeptics page last week. We'd shared a story, and I can't for the life of me remember what story it was, but it was it was something fake and false. And we you know we shared it with a with a fun comment, and you know people were having a nice laugh, or you know got angry about it, and were commenting that way. But the message we got was you know essentially saying, "Hey, you shouldn't be sharing that. It might." you know, make its way to onto somebody's screen that doesn't know that you're sharing it in that way. You know, friends of friends, you know, people who don't directly follow the skeptics group but may see it on the friends wall or whatever. And it does place us in a in a bit of an unusual situation. I've seen the same as well, like if we've shared something, we get the um, you know, underneath the post on Facebook with the fact checking part saying, hey, this, we think this is false. And I'm like, I know that's exactly <laughs> why we're sharing it, you know. But I think we have to be careful as skeptics with how we do that and the context that we do it with. And, you know, maybe we have to be a bit more um, aware of giving oxygen to to things like that, you know? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's sometimes like satire, sometimes done so well that people can't recognize it as that. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, um, I would like to tell you about a new study that came out because the study suggests that countries with mandatory BCG vaccination might be better off in the fight against COVID. And, well, if you're like me, then you might wondering what a BCG vaccine is. <laughs> I'm wondering that, yes. <laughs> and it's um, it's a Bacillus calmet gearing vaccination. Oh. doesn't really help you yet, no. I think. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> Um, it's against tuberculosis and other respiratory diseases, and you usually give it young children, or you gave it to young children, because they actually pretty much stopped doing that, or they did that until the early 2000s, and then they stopped doing that. But what the study found out is that countries that did um, give this vaccination until the year 2000 have a degree of herd immunity against COVID. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, it's, as I already said, it's a tuberculosis uh, vaccine and it also protects against other respiratory infections, also lung cancer and also sometimes even bladder cancer. So it's a, it's very boosty to your immune system. <laughs> Apparently, it can reprogram immune cells positively and then it will work better against viral infections. No, but it makes sense because a lot of the problems we hear with COVID is that it sets down your your ability to absorb oxygen 
through your lungs. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can um, pretty much see why it could work because the vaccine is against respiratory infections anyways, like viral infections. Yeah. And they wanted to be able to compare between countries. And I think we talked about this on the show before that it's very hard to compare even European countries with each other um, in regards to COVID, but also in regards to other things because there are so many different things <laughs> and variables. And yeah, to still be able to compare the countries, they focused on the 30-day period after the first 100 confirmed cases or the first death of COVID. And they also tried to factor in things like the age of the population, the density of the population, the GDP, and so on. And yeah, they found out that um, the BCG vaccination, if it happened, <laughs> then it significantly flattened the curve. So it could protect populations from future outbreaks if it would be started again. But they also said there are still large vari uh, variations. So it's no magical cure. No, I could guess be beneficial not. though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, interesting. The more we know, the, the better it is, I guess. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, I, I can tell you guys that I, I have had my ECG vaccination. Ooh. It was kind of a rite of passage, like when you were at school, uh, so I, I, I guess I must have been about maybe 12, 12 or 13, I think, at the time. And, and you, you got the vaccination in school. So, wow. you know, you, there, would, there would be an appointment with like the school nurse or a nurse that had come into school for the day to, to give you your jag. And, you know, you, you all queued up and you got your jag. And I vaguely remember it being a little bit painful, but not too bad. But you know, interestingly, was was the aftermath of getting the BCG was to see how people reacted to it very quickly. Just to let you know, folks, nobody got autism from it. Nobody died. <laughs> but some people did get more of a reaction. You got it in like the upper arm there, right up towards the shoulder. And some people, you know, it would swell up and be very sensitive. Other people, it was fine. For me, it was fine. But it was standard procedure for little shitbag school kids like me to punch your friends on the arm where they got their BCG Ouch. to, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> just to, to let them know, uh, I don't know how tough you were or whatever. And, you know, if they'd had a particularly bad reaction to it, then it would be even more painful for them. That's what school was like in the late 80s, folks. It was horrible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks but for that insight from the past. <laughs> yeah, but but it's nice to know that that toughening up, not just from the dead arms that you were giving your friends, but maybe it's given you a little bit of extra immunity to that. So that's good to know. Yeah. I, I I think I've got a BCG, BCG scar somewhere, but a tiny one, it didn't make a big reaction on me and it might be covered by a tattoo. Yeah, yeah this, you know, Brian, this is an audio-only podcast, so it won't be shown even if you're looking for it the right now. The listeners want to know. But we could post really, pictures, of course, on, on social media. We could post pictures of Brian's <laughs> tattoos on the, on the show notes, sure. Yeah, sure. Now, talking about immunity to COVID, there's a different type of uh, infection going around, and it is fraud as a result of the coronavirus. No. So this is an, an article that we dug up on the BBC. And it's banks reveal the 10 coronavirus scams to be wary of. So apparently there's been quite a spike in attempted online scams, mostly online scams. Local councils have recorded a 40% increase reported since the start of lockdowns. Some scams manipulate their victims by urging people to invest and take advantage of the financial downturn. 
which sounds very Tory policy, right? Um, others impersonate well-known subscription services to trick people to part with their cash. Some criminals even pose as representatives from the NHS test and trace service to fool people into giving away their personal details. So let me take you guys on a, a quick top 10 run through of the, the, the favourite COVID-19 scams. So let's see, number one, fake government emails, which look like they're from government departments, offering grants of up to 7,500. The emails contain links which steal personal and financial information. Number two, scam emails offering access to COVID-19 relief funds, which again encourage you to fill in personal information. Number three, official looking emails offering a council tax reduction. And again, it leads you to a fake website, which harvests personal and financial information. Number four, benefit recipients are offered help in applying for universal credit, but fraudsters grab some of the payment as an advance for their services. So just when you think the poor don't get fucked enough, uh, here's some extra fucking for you. Yeah. Okay. On to some health scams. Number five emails claiming that the recipient has been in contact with someone diagnosed they lead to fake websites that are used to steal personal and financial information number six fake adverts for non-existent coronavirus related products such as hand sanitizer and face masks which simply take your cash and send you nothing number seven fake emails and texts claiming to be from tv licensing which is still a thing in the UK. Really? Really? We yeah, just got yeah. rid of it uh, last yeah. year, I think, in Sweden. Well, we're still hanging on in the UK here. It tells people they're eligible for six months free because of the pandemic. Oh, uh, and there's been a problem with their direct debit. And again, they're asked, they're off, taken off to a fake website. Uh, number eight, emails asking people to update their TV subscription services payment details. I guess maybe Netflix and the like. And again, that's stealing credit card information. Number nine. Fake profiles and social media sites are used to manipulate victims into handing over their money. Criminals will often use the identities of real people to strike up conversation with their targets. That's Somebody attempted that with me before. Number 10, last but not least, fake investment opportunities advertised on social media sites, encouraging victims to take advantage of that financial downturn, as we mentioned earlier on. Bitcoin platforms are using emails and adverts on social media platforms to encourage unsuspecting victims to put money into fake companies using fake websites. Now, that last one, I have a little less sympathy. You know, if you've got enough money to quote unquote invest and you're black hearted enough to try and invest in something just to take advantage of everything else that's going wrong in the world at the moment, then... I'm not too devastated if you lose your money. But for the other nine, really, really disappointing to see that. But, you know, we've seen this before, folks. You see the worst of people during a a crisis like this. But, you know, I'm sure that none of those scams that I've mentioned are in any way new or unfamiliar to any of you guys or any of the listeners. Yeah. Um, It's stuff we've seen before, just in a different guise. Just Um, rebranded now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, whilst I trust our loyal and uh, very attractive listeners to to be immune to such things please warn your your relatives and your friends look out for these things on social media call them out report them as much as you can look after each other folks exactly did you guys ever run into a scam as i say like i did i did have somebody at least it appeared to be a facebook friend of mine private message me 
saying they'd been, oh, like stranded on vacation or mm. something and asked if I could help get them home. Now, I, I kind of spotted it immediately. It wasn't somebody that I'd normally be in direct contact with, but I would imagine that, you know, if you are not aware of these type of scams, if it was somebody who purported to be closer to you, I guess you could be fooled by it. But, you know, there's there's nothing that's really caught me. And a lot of those Nigerian prince emails that, that go around, <laughs> you know, often go right straight to your spam folder these days anyway. Yeah. What about the rest of you? I think I've had a couple of offers like that or contacts like like you said, somebody's stuck somewhere and needs money. I've never fallen for it, but uh, I guess it's just a question of time. I mean, sooner or later you will. I have fallen for other things that I'm ashamed to talk about here, but not, not, not anything that was uh, very important. Did those pills not make it grow any bigger, Pontius? Don't worry. Like we've we've all been there, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> well, we had something. It wasn't completely internet. Well, it was mostly internet related. We were looking for a new flat, and they had like pictures up and everything. And we got in contact because the flat looked really good. It was a good location. It was wasn't too expensive. It was just like a normal price. So we got into contact. And they said, uh, they came back to us and were like, oh yeah, it's not a problem. We're in like outside of the country right now, but we could send you the keys to the house and then you could just be the, our new tenant. And you would just give us the deposit um, to this Australian or like American uh, account and just send us this and that amount of money. And that's where we were like, what? They want to have us like live in the house without us having seen the house and they want us to send money to an account outside of the country that seems a bit shady and then we just like yeah. reported it and it was a scam <laughs> so yeah that would be pretty pretty set up <laughs> I, but but that's one of those things you know like people do own property in other places you know like on, on the face of it i mean it, it it smells a bit fishy but there are situations like that that could be genuine i would imagine if they'd a bit more careful with you it could have seemed more plausible but good on you for sniffing that one out straight away yeah, it was like, we were very impressed because they went to a lot of trouble to set that up. So it wasn't like just one email. It was like a whole thing that they put in onto a uh, flat house looking website and they answered our emails repeatedly. So they, they went to a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> wow. You've got to admire the industry of that. <laughs> well, not really, but maybe a bit. <laughs> Yeah, and coming from fake news and, and scams, I will talk about a topic that is maybe a bit different to that, <laughs> and that is that the World Health Organization calls for caution about the Russian vaccine rollout because they say following virus vaccine guidelines is very, very important, as you can imagine. They started, or they sa said that because Russia announced they'll quickly produce COVID-19 jabs. They will start that in September and they will have millions of people vaccinated before next year, they said. And of course, the World Health, Health Organization told them <laughs> to please follow the guidelines for safe and effective vaccines. And they stress that all vaccine candidates should receive full testing. <laughs> um, Good idea. It has to, yeah, yeah. And like the, the guidelines are there for a reason. They're testing for it to be safe and to be effective, to be working, but also to test out any negative side effects that you don't want to have. Like it, it doesn't help you if you 
like not die from COVID, but then from something else. So <laughs> yeah, it has to be safe. And the tests are usually very rigorous because it's very human. And I think we can all agree it's very human to be biased or to miss something in your own research. And if you don't follow the guidelines, then it's a risky game. And the World Health Organization got like anxious about that because the Russian vaccine candidate is listed as being in phase one of testing, but the candidates have to pass several phases. So like to give you an idea, those candidates who are like the furthest right now are in phase three, but they're also not finished yet. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's very important that you follow the guidelines, Russia. So please do that. <laughs> please listen to the who. <laughs> Putin, if you're listening, please get your ducks in a row. If if you have a certain tests that you you want to test for long term long term side effects, then you ha it, if it's six months, it's six months. You can't do that in three weeks. Doesn't yeah, matter exactly. how you you do it. We're here probably very uh, not probably we're here very pro vaccine, of course. But if yep. somebody would offer me a Russian vaccine against COVID nineteen today, I would probably pass because I know yeah. they there's no chance that they have had time to do all the tests that are needed. Yeah. I, I just hear the term Russian vaccine and I think vodka, right? Is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah God, just drink some vodka. <laughs> I, I'm not skeptical about Russian vodka. <laughs> well, I think the best that could happen to you if you get a vaccine now is like that it's not working, that it's just like pretty much a homeopathic uh, vaccine or something like that. Yeah. But we both, like, we all know that it's it can, like a lot more uh, worse things can happen. Yeah. All right. So different topic altogether. Now we're leaving uh, COVID nineteen for a little bit. There has been some trying to find something good with uh, the current pandemic, saying at least uh, with the lockdowns or at redu and reduced travels, etc., CO two emissions will go down, which must be good for the climate. Yeah. The question is, is that true? And of course, you can study these things. And there is a new study published in Nature that has tried to evaluate this hypothesis. And there is good news and there is bad news. The good news is that, yes, the current pandemic, lockdown, etc. will make a positive difference. Yay! Yay! Woo. But Woo. the bad news I is it's so <laughs> small that we can almost ignore it. Oh, oh, it's almost homeopathic. I just yeah. opened a beer to celebrate that. Positive. I'm going to have to drink it now. Uh, yeah, but, uh, well, you know, can we have better good news the next time, please? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can just drown your sorrows. Uh, this okay. study concludes that by 2030, the global rise in temperature will be 0.01 degrees lower than it would have been without the pandemic. So 0 0.01 degrees centigrade lower than it should have been, uh, or would have been rather. So the pandemic will make a little dent uh, in the release of greenhouse gases, but it's almost meaningless. However, there are good news. So keep that beer uh, around. Hey. Yeah, there is a <laughs> ray of hope here in the study. They look at three different scenarios in recovery from the pandemic when it comes to getting the economy going again, fully going back to fossil fueled economy, of course. And then they have two different scenarios when we take uh, the opportunity to implement more green energy instead. And in the best of those scenarios, we could reduce global temperature increases with 
0.3 degrees Celsius by 2050, not by 2030, because there's the delay in the effects of what you're doing. If you change things now, you may not see the results until 2050 or something. But let's take that chance here and now and do what we can to get the economy going in a green way after the pandemic. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. As far as drowning solar is concerned, this one is also requiring of a, of a strong drink. So this next story was brought to our attention by the Irish Humanists and also Humanist uh, UK. They were pointing to a job advertisement. Now, jobs are hard to come by at the moment, and this is a job for the NHS. Brilliant. Now, remember the NHS? We went out or, and applauded them many, many times during the course of the, the COVID crisis. So let me give you the job title. Job title. Spiritual healer slash Reiki therapist, band four. (laughs) Pontus is already not having it. (laughs) I may seek the job because um, that that would be... uh, (laughs) With your golf golf lessons against neck pain. Yeah, (laughs) correct. So, so here's what's going on. So we we did have a moan about this on Twitter and did get a response from them about this. So we have to be very clear that this post is an NHS post, but it has been funded outside of the NHS. It's been funded by a charity. And actually, since we and many other folks complained about this, the job title has changed. <laughs> they, they've taken away the spiritual healer part uh, of the vacancy title now, probably because that was, I guess, the most ridiculous part of it. So now the job description or the job title says charity funded reiki therapist so they've put in the word charity and removed the spiritual healer part so what's going on here it says we're pleased to be working with the sam buxton sunflower healing trust to offer this exciting opportunity if you're a qualified and experienced reiki therapist with one or more year of experience you will have had to have completed the healing and hospital course So there's a a specific course requirement to attend this. That course is delivered by Angie Buxton King. She is the mother of the aforementioned Sam Buxton. Now, it appears that that Angie was the mother of Sam Buxton. Young Sam had, I believe, childhood leukemia. I'm not sure whether he survived it or not. I don't think he did. So clearly, Angie has gone on to figure out what can she do to, I guess, further the memory of her son and try and provide, you know, support for, for people who are undergoing cancer treatment? Unfortunately, she's sort of fallen on this sort of spiritual healing or Reiki or therapeutic touch type thing that, that her group appears to do. Now, it's disappointing that the NHS are not funding this, but let's be very clear. They are spending money on this, okay? It costs money and time to do the administrative work required to advertise jobs. They will no doubt have some form of office space. There will be paperwork that has to be done with regards to who from this trust are are working in the wards, etc. So it is costing the NHS money, although not the salary of the people that they are they're employing. But it gives credit, un- unwanted credence to to this, you know, complete pseudoscience, yeah. unfortunately. 
Like they have their name on it. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right now, if if you dig a little bit further, you know, you find that Angie Boxton King has actually got a couple of books you can buy. One of her books is called The NHS Healer, right? And this term of this term of being a healer or healing is something that they use a lot in their literature, in their obviously in their job advertisements. And, and I watched a YouTube video of theirs as well, which talked about it. And, you know, really disappointed to see there are some some doctors from the, the hospitals that they work in who are waxing lyrical about the good things that they do. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Even though we as skeptics know that what they're doing doesn't actually have any any clinical effect, they're spending time with these patients they're doing nice treatments with them. It's nice and relaxing, whether you believe in Reiki or not. It's nice and relaxing to, to be sat in a room with someone. And, you know, they, they had patient testimonies who were who were very favorable of it. So it leaves me with a, a, a pretty nasty taste in my mouth because I know that this is bollocks, but it is the type of care and support that we don't have the resources to really give to people. You know, and don't get me wrong, like it could be we could give them a nice bath or a massage or Pontus could pick up his guitar that's in the background there and go around and sing. That would be more of a torture. That that, that would be maybe not so good, right? But but the simple fact is if you've got if you're got if you've got people who are willing to go in and spend time with, with these people who are undergoing some pretty nasty treatment and the NHS themselves don't have the resources to give them any care and attention other than the, the than the immediate medical care, then maybe it's not quite a bad thing. I just I just wish they didn't use the word healer or healing in there as well. And there's there's they're they're definitely, you know, utilizing the fact that they've got NHS endorsement there. So I you know, folks, I don't know what to make of it. Feel free to, you know, join our little Twitter thread that the Glasgow Skeptics started on it. But um <laughs> Uh, uh, otherwise, hopefully they've learned their lesson and, you know, they'll be a little bit more careful about their job advertising in the future. Yeah. Well, I, I just feel like they're opening space to, like, let people think that maybe Reiki could help against cancer and, like, people stopping their actual treatments. And that's, like, life-threatening. So I always feel very bad if I hear things like that. Yeah. Well, exactly. More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, but but you're right, Brian. That that there is there are things we could probably learn from these bogus treatments in what you're describing as you know taking care of people, spending time with them, sitting talking to them for an hour, and that's something that we don't do very well in normal real medicine because you get in and you see a doctor for ten minutes, you get a prescription, and out you go, and yeah. that is bad. And so there are things we could learn. However, as you said, again, uh, it's a question of funding. How can we afford it? How can we afford having a very qualified, expensive doctor talking to you for one hour? No, we probably can't. But maybe we can learn something from the whole thing. So now we need to start the the Brian Ego Nice Chit Chat Foundation. (laughs) 
you know, registered <laughs> charity. We could just go around and have a nice chat with people. Maybe give them a little non-creepy back rub or something like that. Just a little <laughs> rub around the shoulders and have a nice chat with them. And that's going to be just as good, if not better, than Reiki or, or therapy. Somehow I think we've been down this road before that where, where Brian offers massages to people. Uh, I, I think we should stay <laughs> Look, away from that. My my sexy remedies are still available for our top tier patrons. So, um, you know, get your money out, folks. All right. He calls himself Pedge Eggman. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, change of topic again. I have several times voiced my opinion about so-called free schools in Sweden, especially the religious ones, of course. Uh, They often sneak in religious indoctrination, even though they pretend to follow the general school plan, which is mandatory and they're not allowed to do any, uh, you know, they're not allowed to sell their religion at school, but still they do. And this is not just me. Uh, it's been debated also in the media for quite some time now. And uh, last week, well, rather two weeks ago, there was a change in the regulations that made it easier to stop or close mismanaged free schools. And the change is that they now include suitability checks, not only of the schools themselves, but also of each and every person behind it, which... I would have assumed had been there in the first place, but apparently that was a loophole, sort of. Then last week, a government-commissioned study was published uh, regarding free schools, and the conclusions were pretty devastating on them. In short, it says that free schools have increased segregation, not decreased it, and it has not improved grades either. Free schools are overfunded, and the the only slight benefit is for students who are already privileged. And so they haven't specifically looked at religious free schools, but free schools in general, which includes the religious ones. So uh, I've usually talked about religious schools, which I I think is a terrible idea. I I don't think you should um, mix education and superstition. (laughs) Uh, But um, I still take this report as a what-did-I-tell-you moment. Uh, And call me a socialist, but schools should be scientifically based, neutral regarding philosophy, and the same for everybody. There. I have spoken. Uh, Very true. (laughs) I mean, we we have similar similar issues in Scotland. There are a lot of Catholic schools in Scotland and a lot of them are very good schools. They score very high in, in the gradings. Nothing to do with the Catholicism part. But, you know, once a school starts getting a good a good reputation, the more ambitious parents, shall we say, will pretend to be Catholic or pretend their kids are Catholic to get them there. And then yeah. you have a sort of a, a, you know, like a feedback loop. But, you know, many of our listeners will not be surprised to hear that we actually have a problem here with a a religious divide in Scotland between Catholics and Protestants. And separating your kids by religion into school is only going to make that worse. So, um, you know, fully on board with you there, Pontus. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know how it is in in your countries. Do Swedish and um, Scottish schools still have religious education as a subject? You, like Christian religious education? Well, you in Sweden you have you do read about religions and all the major religions, what they are about, etc. But you're not allowed to indoctrinate or to convince that any student that one religion is better than the other. So it's sort of just knowing what it's about, what is the difference between 
the beliefs of a Muslim and a Jew and a Hindu, etc. And I think that's part of what you should know. So that's fine. But you're not allowed to spread religion. Yeah, in Scotland, or certainly, I mean, I'm basing this on uh, the education that my older children got. You know, back in my day, it was called RE, religious education. You got taught about you got taught about religion, mostly Christianity. Um, <laughs> now it's that. called RMPS, religious, moral, and philosophical something, um, and and it's a much broad <laughs> it's a much broader curriculum, which is great. And, and you know, I, I remember my kids coming back, and they'd had some interesting discussions about things like euthanasia and abortion, you know, which which you know are, are interesting topics, but they were still dragged off to the church from time to time, notably sort of just before the Easter break started and stuff. You know, I do remember having to write letters to the school to get my daughter out of having to go to the church on days like that. You know, I'd much rather she was learning things uh, rather than being um, proselytized to. So, you know, it's it's less of an issue in many of the schools in Scotland. But, you know, I guess the more the more religious the school you go to, the bigger the problem. Yeah, and it, it might make you happy or more like unhappy that in Germany they actually still have religious education and it's still mostly Christian-based. So they try to put some things in like euthanasia or like uh, like discussion about euthanasia, of course, or yeah, like some philosophical topics. And they also will tell you a bit about other religions, but this is pretty much a three-month thing. And apart from that, it's mostly Christian uh, dogma. And uh, you can imagine that German skeptics are not super happy about that. So, mm. yeah, it's it's still happening here. And, um, like, the church things are also still happening in Germany. So even even um, students who, who don't are not even Christian will be dragged to these churches. So, yeah, <laughs> that's how it is in Germany. I wonder how many get converted because of that. I mean, like when I went to school, we we sang hymns every morning, pretended to, and <laughs> we said the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, the vast majority of us just didn't take it seriously, didn't pay any attention. You know, I could, I could probably, you know, I can still recite the Lord's Prayer. I could probably sing a few hymns to you or at least uh, know the tunes, but nobody ever considered the significance of them. It was... It was a thing you had to tolerate and you didn't pay much attention to. So I'm hoping that the kids of today are very much the same in that respect. <laughs> that they don't pay attention at school. That's what you're saying. <laughs> they, they, they pay attention to the things they really need to know. <laughs> okay. I just, uh, I just feel like nobody should be made to do that if they don't want to. No. Correct. Correct. Okay. So let's get back to cancer. Uh, yes. What's... Why what's not? a good what's a good skeptic show with a, a couple of dips in their uh, of our toes into the wonderful world of cancer. So this is potentially good news here actually um Ooh. in the UK. It did mean that I had to look at the Telegraph website which you know I I'm going to have a share after this anyway but don't worry. <laughs> so the headline is government may intervene to curb dangerous cancer cure propaganda. So the, the upshot is ministers are discussing expanding the Cancer Act to police medically unproven procedures and bring in tighter regulations on social media. And this appears to be happening across the, the political divide. There's a backlog in cancer treatments because of the COVID-19 crisis, and there's a fear that that's going to lead to an uptick in people seeking those dangerous alternative treatments. 
So there's a great hope that it's going to be this, you know, modernization of the act is going to be a great weapon to fight and protect the most vulnerable people in society. Apparently, one particular MP, a Conservative MP, Anthony Brown, said he was stirred into action following a confidential letter he received from the relative of a constituent who had died following the use of fake cancer treatments. Now, again, for us as skeptics, this is nothing new to us. We've been talking about this for years and years and years, but it has bubbled up into the public consciousness again recently. And I think you guys mentioned it on the show. There was a BBC Three documentary here about focusing on on particularly a couple of people who had um, taken alternative cancer treatment. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the programme, didn't end well for them. And again, I think the Good Thinking Society were involved in, in some of those investigations and discussions. So essentially, you know, they're they're going to modernise this the nineteen thirty nine Cancer Act, which is which is there and, and is and is useful and helpful. We've leveraged it a few times ourselves, actually at Glasgow Skeptics. We've spotted some issues with uh, you know, people locally trying to promote cancer cures or treatments and you know, every time we've reported it, you know, we managed to have a couple of events cancelled. We reported one particular practitioner of Germanic New Medicine to the the organisers of the, the festival that he was speaking at, and he his website has since kind of gone stagnant and, and died off. So, you know, it's it's useful as a tool, but certainly it's it's hard to enforce. And I think it's all fair and well improving the letter of the law and expanding it out to social media. I'd be very interested to see how that pans out. I think, though, what we need, though, is some actual teeth and some resource to enforce that law. Because a lot of times, you know, and again, as skeptics, you know, you'll see it popping up again and again. It's like, a, what's it called? Like whack-a-mole. I've heard yeah. this described a lot yeah. of times. Like they'll pop up all the time and you can make a complaint and that particular event will go away or that particular person might change the wording of their website. But what they say on their website versus what they say to people in confidence are two different things. So whilst I welcome the, the improvement of the law, I'll be happy to see if it's actually properly enforced and we see people being fined or even being jailed for this type of thing. Who knows? Yeah, but I think they should because they're essentially murdering or manslaughter people there. So... Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, w- without a doubt, like we've seen, there are studies to show that people who are more prone to uh, going for alternative treatment are less likely to survive past five years, ten years, and so on and so forth. So, it is a very indirect piece of manslaughter, absolutely. But it, I think that's hard to legislate. But hopefully, there's enough teeth in the new legislation to at least put the fear of fines and imprisonment into these practitioners and maybe make them focus on other things. And, but, and you know what, like if you're a quack for all the quacks out there, good news for you. You don't just, just pretend you can cure something else other than cancer. There's loads of diseases out there. Okay. (laughs) Just, just take cancer off your list. There's lots of sick and desperate people out there with more money than they need. So, you know, the scam artists are always going to do. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's like whack a mole. They will come up again. Well, it sounds oh, like sure. you, we, we, you shouldn't take advice from this podcast in that respect. Don't go <laughs> fraud, be fraudulent against other things. I've we should got, probably not only put an explicit tag on, but also like a sarcasm tag. <laughs> I've got great faith in our listeners that they are not going to go and join the dark side based on my flippant comments. Okay. <laughs> 
yeah, with with hope and criticism, we should maybe leave the news behind. And I will ask you, Pontus, who was uh, really wrong or really right this week? Yes, and we will stay in the UK, actually, even though today's item comes from Steve Novella of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe fame. Mm. And as many of you know, he's extremely prolific guy. And among other things, he blogs on the science-based medicine site. On 5th of August, he took a look at the draft of the latest recommendations from NICE in the UK. That's the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence. It's a very good acronym they have there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this draft, he wasn't so happy with. It includes advice regarding acupuncture. And, uh, well, let's just say that Dr. Novella was not impressed. So the new recommendations, which are still open until uh, 14th of September, looks at acupuncture as treatment for chronic pain. And it says that for... Uh, Long term, there is no proven efficacy, but for initial treatment, like the first three months, they do recommend it. Steve Novella looks at these recommendations in two steps. First, how evidence-based are they and how science-based are they? And there's a difference. When it comes to evidence, their recommendation is based on 27 studies. And in the actual recommendations, it still admits that 15 of those are of very low or low quality. So you could... Why, why include studies of low or very low quality? That's just stupid, but still they do that. At least they're honest about it. Also, Steve Novella points out that in general with studies like this, particularly regarding acupuncture, I mean, even the properly conducted ones generally have uh, several issues. First of all, they mix apples and oranges. They, the definition of what is acupuncture is different from study to study, where different acupuncture points are used, and sometimes it includes electrotherapy in these needles. And if you add that's electric... completely different. Yeah, it's it a, it's not the same like thing. Torture. It's not no normal <laughs> quote unquote acupuncture anymore. Another problem is that a lot of the positive studies comes from China. And the thing about that is that it just happens to be that 100% of all published acupuncture trials from China are positive because negative results are not allowed. So that makes them all invalid because if you can only publish the, the fraction of them that are positive, you can't take anything from that. Because even if acupuncture was effective, you would not get 100% positive results. That's not how science no. works. You would also, by chance, have some odd negative results. But since you see all of them being 100% positive, you know you can't trust them because something fishy is going on. So just being racist against the Chinese again. No, no. No, no. It's evidence-based. So that's... Evidence-based racism. There we go. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so that's the evidence-based thing. If you go to the science-based angle, you can uh, conclude that there is no known mechanism for how acupuncture would work. All talk about meridians and acupuncture points are just speculation, and there is no evidence that they exist. Also, acupuncturists, between them, they cannot seem to agree where these points are and how you should use them. So um, the result is that there is no difference from jabbing people with random needles on random places right and it's like it's acupuncturists sometimes get 
not much, they don't get many instructions, then it can also be very harmful because depending on how deep you jab people yeah. <laughs> or where, <laughs> right. it can totally hit something that you need. Absolutely. We had two cases in Sweden last year where, well, actually it was three cases involving two different acupuncturists. Two people got punctured lungs and almost died of suffocation. And one person died possibly from a punctured um and i always forget the word for that that's a scientific word for the sac you have around your heart oh okay yeah andras Pol knows the word. i know the german word sorry what <laughs> kind of needles were they using exactly Fucking tent pegs or something my god they're trying to pin these people to the wall i don't know what's going on there it's <laughs> terrible and, and of course, nails. if you go to another acupuncturist and, and take that as an example, they will say, oh, but they were doing it wrong. They're not really acupuncturists. I thought, okay, show me a real acupuncturist. What is the evidence-based, science-based way of doing this? And they can't tell you because a lot of them are self-taught. Others have heard it from others, but it's not. there's no regulations. There's no standards to be applied or, or anything. So recommending acupuncture for chronic pain even if it's only for the first three months and, and i can't imagine why it would work for three months and then just stop working <laughs> so it, it it's just wrong it gives people false hope it gives people um, a belief in things that don't work and with very very little if no evidence or science behind it but there is good news and the good news is that you can go in and comment on these suggested guidelines on uh, NICE's, <laughs> NICE's uh, <laughs> web website uh, before 14th of September, and we will share the link. And you can let them know what you think about these uh, recommendations. So I've actually got a friend, an old school friend of mine who works for NICE. Mm -hmm. And I was just having a quick look at my Facebook messaging. Uh, I think I messaged him before about acupuncture, uh, <laughs> and we had a we had an interesting uh, exchange of ideas. So, Davy, if you're listening, I'm coming for you again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? I was wondering, like, do you think acupuncturists would take credit for Jesus's resurrection? Because you know, like, you know, he I got some pretty detailed acupuncture when he was up there right right yeah i think that was a little bit over the top because even if he did come back three days later it didn't work well for them the first they day really stimulated his chakras yeah <laughs> oh boy the gcbo effect the jcbo well, placebo effect. means i believe doesn't it so <laughs> there you go it all ties in all right. So, for recommending acupuncture despite any evidence or science, NICE, and that's the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence in the UK, gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. Yeah. And if you can, go in and comment on the suggested guidelines before the 14th of September on the link that we will share. Yeah, mention my schoolmate, Davy. I'm coming for you, Davy, again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're almost done with the show, but before we close, I would ask Brian if he has a quote for us. Indeed I do. 
A scientific theory isn't just a hunch or guess. It's more like a question that's been put through a lot of tests. And when a theory emerges consistent with the facts, the proof is with science, the truth is with science. That was from They Might Be Giants, from the song Science Is Real, which Ooh. is the opening track of their kids' album, Here Comes Science. So wow, it popped into my head because I've always been thinking of science-friendly stuff to subject my baby daughter to, and I think that's going to go on to the playlist. Ah, very, very good. That's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty well known. That they might be giants for being very pro-science and pro-education and stuff. They've released a bundle of albums, actually. A lot of them sort of like, you know, letters and numbers, ABC and 123 and that sort of thing. So it's really, really nice to see them. I think you might know them better for... I think they did the theme tune to Malcolm in the Middle. Come on, no, you must know that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, I haven't heard of that. So me neither. Yeah. I'm sorry. Seriously, <laughs> but, uh, but I have heard about there might be giants before. There you go. Birdhouse in your yeah, soul was their do. big hit, I think, in the UK. Anyway, okay. sometime in the nineties. Who knows? You're too young, Annika. Don't worry. There's some <laughs> musical gems for you to unearth. Okay, will do. <laughs> But until I will, <laughs> I thank you both for being here on the show. Thank you. It's been great to be back. And I very much thank our listeners for tuning in week after week. And I hope you will do that even if you don't hear Andres saying that. <laughs> but he will be back, no worries. <laughs> Probably. No, very likely. <laughs> and until then, tschüss. Hello. Get up, yeah. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. All right, Annika, yeah. you're in the lead. You have to do the yes. segues. Sorry, yeah, I will do. <laughs> I don't know. Like, isn't there like an analogy about like turning a Delay. ship around or something? It's like yeah, a big exactly. Ship That's what I mean. It's all right. Yeah. Anyway, I'll reformulate that. Uh, at least there's no icebergs to hit now because of global warming. <laughs> though, so we're, yeah, we don't need to turn quite as much. No. <laughs> All right. That, that was good. I got through like um, one and a half beers as yep. well, which was nice. <laughs> I had to take what I had. So I got half a glass of wine and a beer. I got it from here to here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're oh, just drinking good. water, Annika. That is very... It's straight, vodka. <laughs> straight vodka, yeah. She, she's having a Russian vaccination evening. Yeah. <laughs>